0: Welcome, from Alpha to Omega. Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 32nd episode, from Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 1st of June, 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the Valiant subscribers who donate some cash to the show every month. They are Precious J, Jerick McH, Jeffrey S and Ambrose A. If you'd like to join in helping keeping the show on the road, you can subscribe or maybe make a one-soft donation by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. This week's guest is Professor Doin Farmer. Doin is a physicist, econophysicist, and founder of the Prediction Company, which brought insights from the world of physics to the world of finance and stock markets. He is currently a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, where he co-directs the Oxford Martin programme on complexity, and is an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. We get him to talk about econophysics, how it ties in with complexity theory, and what all of this means for the current economic orthodoxy. We also talk about some models he has built that try and replicate the housing crash experienced in the Washington DC area, and how leverage and market impact works to destabilize our economies. But first, we discuss his days as a professional roulette player. I heard that you made a bit of money as a young man wearing a wearable computer that you brought into a casino to try and beat roulette. How the hell did this work?
1: (laughs) Well it's a pretty simple idea really. As physicists we know that roulette involves a rolling ball on a circular track. So it's a physical system and The key fact is that they don't close bets and roulette until a couple of seconds before the ball actually falls off the track. So there's about a 10 or 15 second period from the moment the ball is released by the croupier till they close the bets where you can gather data and make a prediction about where the ball is gonna exit. So we built a first wearable computer, a version of which eventually ended up in a shoe. Earlier versions were under the shoulder. We used switches in our shoes to watch the ball and click when it passed a reference point with our toes to time how long it took to go around a revolution and then use that to predict where the ball was going to exit relative to the rotating part in the center. We also had to click on the rotating part of the center and predict it. So you predict what the rotating part in the center did, what the ball's doing, make an estimate of where it was going to land, and make bets on those numbers. And was it successful? Yes and no. We we beat the house at a pretty decent rate. We didn't really make much money. I mean, we did come out well ahead of the house, but we, we, we never got up to really big stakes. To be honest, we were a bit afraid. And and we never had a big bankroll.
0: So we did get chased out of the casino a couple of times. How? Did, did they see? Did they see that you were doing something?
1: Yeah, you know what? They, what they noticed is, first of all, they notice that you're winning a lot. And that gets their attention. And then they notice if they're paying attention that we we were, we would bet on adjacent numbers on the wheel as opposed to on the layout. And we did that to try and reduce the fluctuations. The problem is if you bet on single numbers, even if you've got an edge, you know, if if you do it blind, it's a one in 36 chance that you get it. Even with a good edge, it might be a one in say 20 chance that you win. That would be a tremendously good edge, but there's huge fluctuations. So to reduce them. We would bet on several adjacent numbers, but the problem is then they noticed that okay, you must have memorized the layout. They noticed that you're always betting at the last minute, and then they would get suspicious. We did get chased out a few times. You know, in in, in hindsight, we should have enlisted some professional gamblers and got a big bankroll and gone into Caesar's Palace and played hundred dollar pop stakes, but we didn't do that. And we also had a lot of hardware problems sort of uh, the first trip to the casino was in 1978. So sort of 78 to 80 was a period where we were active. Back in those days, it was pretty challenging to pack that much stuff into a concealable package. Um, With the computers of that day, we had to make the whole program fit into three kilobytes of memory. That's kilobytes, not megabytes. And so it was a very compact program. Everything had to be kept very simple. You know, we were really pushing the state of the art of the technology at the time.
0: And how did it give you a readout to tell you which number it was going to land on? We we
1: had a uh, little vibrators. So we had a, what we would call a, a in the earlier version, we had a solenoid plate that you put under your belt. And there were three, three little solenoids that the computer would vibrate at one of three frequencies. So we had three locations with three frequencies. And so that meant uh, we could get nine numbers output that way. So we use that both to know what number to bet on, because it, w- it would say, it would give a number between um, one and nine, and then corresponding that we would divide the wheel up into eight parts, eight octants, and the user would memorize which numbers were in which octa. So if it vibrated three, you'd know, okay, that's, you know, eight, 22 and 35 or something. You place bets on those three numbers.
0: Dwayne, you're probably most well-known for your work in the field of econophysics. What would you describe as the main qualities of this field?
1: Well, really, it's taking a physics-type approach to understanding, to understanding economics. And one of the things I've realized, having worked in many different fields now, is that people have a, different, a very different epistemologies about how they go about doing science. So that means a different notion of what interesting questions are, a different notion of how you go about answering them, and a different notion about what you accept as answers. And physics is very different in that regard than economics. So I think the key difference is really in bringing the style of thinking that comes from physics to problems in economics.
0: There seems to be somewhat of a resistance to the use of empirical data in economics profession. Is this something that you've come across?
1: Well, to be fair, economists use plenty of empirical data. I think the difference between an economist and a physicist is the way in which they use the data. Physicists, first of all, believe that data should come first. The most important thing you've got to do is gather good data. You should start by looking at the data and use that to guide the kind of questions you pose and how you go about answering them. Economics has traditionally been divided into two branches. There's econometrics on one side, which is very much data first, and theory on the other side, which is is not data first. And and, an economic theorist typically believes that you need to have a well-formulated question and theory that you bring to the data because otherwise you're just gonna get lost. Whereas a physicist says, well, let's look at the data and then let's try and make a theory after we've looked at the data for a while and iterate between the data and, and the theorizing. Uh, economists often find that dissatisfying. But, you know, I, I think, by the way, that it comes partly from the experience you have as a physicist when you learn quantum mechanics, you realize that your intuition about everything is may well be wrong. And so you better, you better just pay attention to what the data says and otherwise you can waste a lot of time wandering around on with wrong ideas. So there's a very different look and feel to the approach. And, uh, you know, I think that, frankly, diversity is a good thing. And the key thing that physicists bring is adding some diversity in the point of view. In financial terms, it diversifies the portfolio research activities.
0: You also do a lot of research in, in complexity theory. Do you see econophysics and complexity theory as... Quite separate, or are there strong links or analogies between the two? No, I, I see them as,
1: as quite strongly linked. The economy is a fantastic example of a self organizing system with emergent phenomena, which is what complex systems is all about studying. You know, this was articulated very well by Adam Smith in 1776, where he, he commented that. How, how can it be that in a situation where everybody's pursuing their selfish ends, we nonetheless end up with uh, activities that support the public good. Now, of course, we know there's problems with that. We have lots of externalities and we have to have governments to try and keep those under control, things like pollution and things that aren't properly priced into markets. But nonetheless, it's a remarkable self-organizing phenomenon. And so I think it's very natural that the two things are linked together.
0: So I've had, in the past, people say to me that you can't model economics because there are human actors involved and free will gets in the way, being able to make decent predictions that the whole problem is just too intractable. What's your response to this critique? Well, they're wrong.
1: (laughs) You know, there are plenty of regularities and laws in the world of human behavior. Now, they're not of the same nature that physical laws are. They aren't as absolute. But we take advantage of this all the time. We we follow certain rules. Very often, when you present yourself to somebody or in any human interaction, you're making predictions, if you will, about how the other person is going to behave. Uh, you can predict if you you know pull your pants down and run around like a lunatic, people are going to react in a rather dramatic way. This is one of many many regularities in human behavior we're taking advantage of all the time. So all you have to do is take psychology course to see that there are some fairly well documented regularities in the way people behave. Now, economics is a particularly good field to look for laws in human behavior because behavior is strongly constrained by the market and by the institutions that we create to interact with markets and to allow markets to function. But I guess, I guess it's true that physicists working in this area have been particularly keen on trying to uncover what those empirical laws are and document what they are and try and make theories to explain why they are the way they are. I think we've found quite a few such things at this point.
0: Can you give some examples of some of the more easily understandable deep laws that have come from this research?
1: So just to make a couple, uh, one is regards market impact. Market impact is how much the price moves in response to buying or selling of a given amount to the entry of new supplier demand so if i suddenly decide i want to buy and now i make a transaction and i push the price up how big does that price change and the market impact function is the relationship between the size of that price change as a function of the size of the amount i buy or sell
0: so if i go to sell a billion dollars of apple stock it'll have a big effect on the price versus, say, selling a million pounds. That's
1: right. Now, this isn't quite the same thing as supply and demand. I mean, supply and demand is one of the oldest concepts in economics. But with supply and demand, you generally assume that you have supply, which is how much is supplied at different, depending on what the price is. And demand, how much will people demand, depending on what the price is. And then the equilibrium price should be at the intersection of those two curves the market impact idea is related but a bit different with market impact you say well if there's a change in the net between supply and demand also called excess demand then how much of a change is that going to cause in the price now the interesting thing that has been observed is that there is at least good evidence i don't think it's 100 percent solid yet but it looks pretty good that there is a particular relationship that is universal in the sense that it's there regardless of the kind of market, as long as market execution is happening under orderly conditions.
0: Will under orderly conditions. Repeat after me. I shall come. In a universal law. I've recently just watched a, a talk that you gave on some new work you've done on systemic risks. Banks currently use a measure of risk called VAR, value at risk. I was wondering if you could explain this, how, how this works. Yeah, so
1: value at risk, the idea is that we try and empirically determine what the distribution of outcomes is. So what can the price on the assets that I'm investing in, what is the, what is the distribution of possible values they could have? How much can they change? And you establish a level of, of risk that you're willing to take. Like you say, want to look at an event that will only happen one time in a hundred. So you have a 1% value at risk. And then you look and see, you know, what size move corresponds to that frequency of outcome. And then you make sure that you've set up your portfolio so that if that size move happens, you're fine.
0: What is the importance of leverage in the riskiness of the banking system? Let
1: me first say what leverage is, and and then let me say why it's important. So leverage would be if I wanted to buy a stock and I went out and let's say I put $1 down and I borrowed $9 to buy $10 worth of stock, then I would have a leverage of 10 to 1. Now, as I described it, that sounds like a pretty shaky deal, but most people actually use leverage when they, for example, buy a house. If you put 20% down to buy your house, you're leveraged at five to one. So leverage is something that people do all the time. The danger of leverage is that if you say leverage at 10 to one and the stock takes a 20% loss, then you just lost more money than you actually invested. You put $10 down, and you borrowed $90 to buy $100 worth of stock, if the stock loses 20%, you just lost $20, and whereas you only invested 10 so you actually lost more money than you invested. If you invested everything that you had, you just lost more money than you have, in which case we're in trouble because somebody's going to have to take the hit, the person that you borrowed the money from. So leverage introduces contagion in the financial markets. and the example I just gave, the loss that you made has been now transmitted to the party that lent you the money. And if the party that lent you the money defaults and they owe money to others as well, the transmission goes on forward. Or if other people are counting on that party to lend them money, the contagion can propagate forward. So leverage is a crucial thing in determining how much financial contagion is possible. And the more the leverage is, the more financial contagion is amplified.
0: So you built a model to see how all these factors would play out in time of crisis. What, what were the results and what other factors were important? We, we've done a couple of different things.
1: One is that we looked at the amplification of contagion through overlapping portfolios. If, you know, Bank A owns a given stock and Bank B owns that same stock and that stock gets depressed in price and as a result, Bank A sells their stock then that's going to depress the price even further, thereby amplifying the contagion for bank B. So we have a model on that, trying to show the circumstances under which financial contagion gets amplified. We also, linking market impact with what we were just talking about, have made a proposal for accounting. And the proposal goes as follows. Normally, when accounting is done, it's done by what's called marking the market. So if I have some assets, I own some things, and I want to know what's it worth, I go out and I look at what it's selling for at this point in time. So let's say I might own Apple stock, and if the last transaction in Apple stock was for $40, I'd take the Apple stock in my portfolio and value it at $40. Now the problem with that is if I'm a big player and I own a billion dollars worth of Apple stock, if I go out there and start selling it, I'm going to depress the price as I sell it, and I'm not going to end up selling my billion dollars of Apple stock at $40 a share. I might end up selling at an average price of $35 a share. So, in order to have an accurate accounting of my portfolio, I need to take that into account. And that's what we proposed taking advantage of work that's been done that shows that market impact follows the universal law. Our recommendation is take the Apple stock in your portfolio, use what we know about market impact, estimate the price at which you're likely to sell it and value your portfolio accordingly. So even if the Apple's selling at $40 right now, we might say, well, really you need to value it at $37 because that's the average price you're going to end up getting when you sell the whole portfolio. Now, this comes into play an important way when you're leveraging as well, because if you're leveraging, you can get into trouble because if you're buying up Apple stock, let's suppose you start to buy your portfolio of Apple stock. As you're buying the stock, you're pushing the price up. Well, it turns out that pushes leverage down. So as you're buying, you don't compute the leverage that you really ought to have. You're, You're overly optimistic about how leveraged you are.
0: So let me try and see if I got this, if I borrow $100 with $10 down to buy $100 of stock I'm leveraged 10 to 1 since I borrowed 10 times the amount that I've invested but if the value of the stock rises to say $150 then I now have assets of my initial $10 and the extra $50 the stock is worth so I'm now leveraged $100 to $60 Are about 1.66 to 1. So the stock's rising price has lowered my initial leverage from 10 all the way down to, say, 1.66. Is that it? That's right.
1: Conversely, as you start to sell out of the portfolio, you push the price down, which amplifies leverage. And so if you are under controls about what leverage you're allowed to take, when the bank lent you the money, it probably said we don't want you to leverage more than 10 to 1 and if you if you're leveraged at 10 to 1 and you start to sell your portfolio then your leverage goes up to say 11 to 1 just because you're driving the prices down by selling then that puts you under even more pressure to sell even more and sell it faster because your bank is not going to be upset that you're exceeding your leverage limit and they'll make what's called a margin call so this can lead to serious problems and in fact if you're leveraged 10 to 1 and your own selling depresses the price by 10%, then you can actually drive yourself out of business.
0: It's a fragile system. So small changes in the in the price when you're at high leverage can cause a dynamic to start such that you go bankrupt. That's right.
1: You can do the simple exercise of buying a stock and selling the stock. In the course of doing that, if it's efficiently leveraged, you can put yourself out of business simply by the act of your own impact of buying and selling.
0: So the fact that you're selling your stock drives the stock price down, which, which then drives your leverage up and makes you bust. That's right. So do we see much of this behavior in the crisis in 2008-2009? Well,
1: you know, we can't really say because we don't have the detailed data, but we do show that it's at least possible that in illiquid markets, people could have been doing this. It's unlikely frankly for something like Apple stock, but for obscure subprime mortgage securities, we think it's quite possible that people like Lehman Brothers did this to themselves.
0: In this kind of model where the market impact's important, it's in a market where that essentially small and illiquid that it would have the biggest effect. That's right. So are there alternatives then to this approach by banks, whereby once they have a leverage limit, they call in their loans? Is there a different way that the banks could operate this to get away from this leverage risk?
1: Well, we think the main thing that should be done is that if banks were to use our procedure for doing their accounting, then they would end up marking their assets at different prices, generally lower prices, which will lead to higher leverage That is, they will estimate a higher leverage with the same portfolio, which will then make them more cautious about the leverage they actually take. In other words, our procedure might say they had a leverage of 10, the other procedure would say they had a leverage of five. So they would hit their leverage limit a lot faster and you'd have a much more accurate measure of the real leverage under our proposal than you do in conventional mark-to-market accounting.
0: I also heard you say something like that you should not force the client to sell the asset but merely transfer the asset at its current value to the book of the bank, which would stop the impact of the selling driving it down further. Yeah, so that's that
1: gets into something that relates to another paper I've done where we looked at different procedures for risk management, such as Basel II. Basel II actually allows you to vary your leverage based on what VAR is. VAR depends on what volatility in the market is. So you have a situation where, when volatility goes up, VAR goes up, and so under a Basel II-like leverage limit, the allowed leverage would go down. Letting the allowed leverage go down would cause funds to sell, which makes market impact and could cause prices to crash in and of itself.
0: So Basel II is the banking accord to govern risk for the international banking system. So what you're saying is that in good times when VAR is low in the banks, that people are allowed to leverage up high, but that when things get a bit risky, they're forced to sell into the market, which causes a cascading effect.
1: That's right. It causes systemic impact that depresses prices and can cause a kind of snowball to get rolling and turn into a crash because if everybody's highly leveraged, and someone starts selling, that pushes prices down, that pushes everybody else's leverage up, pushes them over their leverage limits, which makes them sell, which further depresses prices, and so on. So we're basically making recommendations about how, how to avoid having those kind of systemic effects. I think the most important thing is to not let leverage get very high to start with. But the other thing is that perhaps... By having different rules about what happens when leverage limits get hit, so that you don't have a triggered wave of selling as a result of the limit getting hit, you could also ensure a softer landing. So, for example, having the selling happen more gradually, you you, you do have to have some kind of selling going on because you don't want to let leverage get arbitrarily high. That's why, as I said at the beginning, I think the best, the best cure is never to get there to start with. Never let leverage get too large. Once leverage is large, then having fixed limits that generate waves of selling can be a very dangerous thing.
0: Do we have empirical data on the average leverage of you know, the typical hedge funds in New York or London?
1: Well, it completely depends on the kind of hedge fund. Some hedge funds leverage almost not at all. Others leverage five or 10 to one, long-term capital management notoriously was leveraged at 40 or 50 to one. And many investment banks leading up to the crisis like Lehman Brothers were leveraged at levels on the order of 30 to one. So leverage levels have been in many cases extremely high. Now, those kind of high leverages are typically on assets that are less volatile than stock. Nonetheless, if you leverage 30 to one, it only takes a little over a 3% movement to uh, put you into the hole. Therefore, those kind of leverages are are very dangerous.
0: Has there been any research done into trying to understand optimum leverage for these funds? Certainly, it's an
1: active topic of research. We've made some recommendations in models that are still fairly stylized. Uh, One of our main goals is to try and calibrate those models accurately so that we can make quantitative estimates about maximum leverages in the model. I mentioned at the beginning where we have overlapping portfolio risk. One of the things you see is that you enter a zone where the system becomes amplifying. That is if you sell assets that depresses the price, which causes me to sell assets, which then depresses the price more that causes others to sell assets. And you have a runaway chain reaction that just is amplifying any small fluctuation. So that's the really critical leverage point. You want to stay well away from that point. So we're trying to make our models more realistic so that we can state exactly where that point is. There's a destination a little up the road The habitations of the towns we know. A place we saw the lights turn low. The jigsaw jazz and the get fresh flow. Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts. Two turntables and a microphone. Bottles and cans, or just clap your hands, or just clap your hands.
0: So So I was wondering if you could tell us about the model you did recently on the housing crash in the Washington, D.C. area.
1: That's a project I'm doing with a a large group of people. We actually have 12 co-authors at this point. The other senior people are Rob Axtell, John Genacopoulos, and Peter Howitt. We chose Washington, D.C. just because the group at George Mason is based in Washington, D.C. and we managed to find some data for Washington, D.C. that we don't have for other areas yet. The goal is to make it a regional housing model so that we could apply it to any region, not just Washington, D.C. What we've done in that project is to gather data on lots of things and take various inputs as exogenous, meaning that we don't try and predict those, we just take them as given. We don't try and predict changes in demography, we take that as a given. We don't try and predict interest rates. We don't try and predict loan policy. Loan policy being, you know, if if you're a buyer and you go in to get a loan, what kind of terms are you offered? But what we do try and predict are housing prices, housing inventories, default rates. And the way the model works is that we go through month by month. What we do is we simulate at the level of individual houses. So we have computer code that goes house by house and makes a decision for each household about, well, do they wanna sell their house? If they're renting their house, do they wanna try and buy a house? If they just moved into the area, do they wanna buy or rent? And then once they've decided those things, if they're if they're selling their house, what price are they gonna put it on the market for? If they're buying, what price range do they wanna look in? If they're a buyer, they go to the bank and ask for a loan. So we simulate what a bank does, they look at the household's income and wealth, make a decision about what kind of loan they're willing to give them, and then they go out on the market, and they, if they're a buyer, they look at houses in the price range that they're interested in, and they may or may not decide to buy one of them and make a transaction.
0: Did you simulate other actors in this model, like real estate agents or banker behavior? Well,
1: we, we implicitly have both real estate agents and bankers in the model. So the bankers are there in that they're making the decisions about what kind of loans are being granted. Real estate agents are there in that we, we have a algorithm that matches up buyers and sellers and procedures for deciding things like what price a house will be put on the market when the price of the house will be marked down. But But those actors are less central to the model than the households themselves.
0: So how many agents or households did you have in the model? Did you need a good big computer to get this running on?
1: Well, not not too big a computer. We're typically running at 10 to 1 scale, meaning for every every 10 people in the Washington area, we simulate one person. We could run the model at a 1 to 1 scale. It's not even clear to us that would give us more realistic results because we're simulating the whole Washington, D.C. area as though it were one neighborhood. To get things more accurate, we'd probably go down to a real neighborhood area. You know, if you're working in Georgetown, you may not want to be buying a house out in Fairfax. It's a kind of a long commute. But we're, we're just simulating as one big pot. So that means we have, you know, we have quite a few agents in the model. But it's not, at this point, that hard to fit on a normal laptop.
0: Was there a geographical element to it? Or was that somehow embedded in the data to do with, say, area and house price?
1: No, right, right now, the model is just uh, lumping together Washington DC as one mixed geographical area. I do think we could ultimately do a better job by going down to the level of zip codes and doing things at a more local level. I mean, there is the real estate edge, you know, location, 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 but uh, on the other hand, you can't do everything at once. And it was already a very ambitious project because to calibrate the model, we've collected data from the census, Data from the IRS about the demographics of people moving in and out, their age group, their income, how often they move. Data from real estate associations about the prices that houses were initially offered on in the market when they were marked down, when they finally got sold. Data from, perhaps most importantly, data on mortgages from a company called CoreLogic that's a leading mortgage provider. So we have a record of all the mortgages in the Washington, D.C. area. You know What were the terms of the loan? What was the size of the loan made, et cetera? We have records of defaults, so we could use all that data to calibrate the behavior of the agents in the
0: model. So, how would how would the model differ from a standard econometric model?
1: Well, an econometric model would, first of all, aggregate the data to a large scale, typically a national scale. Though there's nothing to say they couldn't do it on a local scale, and we'll use these postulated relationships between the aggregated variables. So they would have a model in which you have a variable like housing price. And you have another variable, which would be maybe housing supply or interest rate, which would be a much simpler model. And the variables would all be at an aggregated level. In contrast, in our model, houses are getting sold at lots of different prices. Each house in general gets sold at a different price. And we can produce... Aggregated statistics about what's going on, we could make a case Schiller housing price index by taking the average of all the prices of the houses sold at a given point in time. But that's not the way the model itself is running. The model actually assumes the agents are heterogeneous, as they're all different, and we're actually simulating things down at a much more microscopic
0: level of detail. So how did the how well did the model end up predicting the observed data?
1: Well, it recovers the housing price bubble. So it recovers the bubble and the crash. It matches many of the series moderately well. does a reasonably good job on housing inventories most of the time. But it doesn't do such a good job on some other things like house vacancies. And I should stress that the model is really still very much a work in progress. It was quite a ambitious project. So we view the version we have as a bit like The prototype of the, you know, the computer, it's not quite ready to be sold yet, but it shows a lot of promise at this point. And in particular, what we've been able to do so far that looks quite promising is do policy studies in which we look at counterfactuals. We say, well, what happens if we hold interest rates constant during the period? What happens if we hold lending policy constant? So in other words, what, what would have happened if from 1997, where we started our simulation onwards, the way things work was just that you had to put 20% down, period, fixed uh, interest rate loan, old-fashioned kind of loan. Well, we see in that case, we wouldn't have had very much of a housing bubble in Washington, DC. And we see that that has a bigger effect than interest rates. Now, to really make these results solid and fully believable, we need to do more to make demonstrate that the model is really reproducing the real world. We intend to do that. We have the advantage that there's at least 20 or 30 different metropolitan areas where we can run the model. As we gain time and experience, we anticipate that, well we should be able to demonstrate if we can run it on other cities like Dallas where there was not much of a housing bubble or Las Vegas where there was an even bigger housing bubble. And capture the differences between cities from the difference in their inputs, then we'll feel like the model is really solid and we can start promoting its ability to help uh, determine housing policy.
0: Have you got as many deep interactions in the model as you would like, or do you have ideas for further increasing the complexity of the model interactions?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things that we would like to do better. One you mentioned already, going down to a finer geographic scale, things would probably get more accurate if we distinguish between neighborhoods. We are not completely happy with the way we're handling renting and investing. Our, Our model is really kind of centered around the typical middle class person that owns their own house and occasionally sells that house and moves to another house that they also own. We've had a hard time getting good data on renters. We've also had a hard time getting good data on investors. I mean, investors are people who might own 10 houses or, you know, might own large apartment buildings and so on. Investors clearly play an important role in real estate speculation. We don't have that part of the model done as well as we would like. Nonetheless, we think the model's made a a good start and we're at a point where we've shown kind of proof of principle that. It's good enough to merit further work.
0: I was wondering if you had, if you have a mechanism for introducing perhaps fraud into the model. Well, we could. We certainly could. It's in a model like
1: this. It's it's not hard to introduce things like that. Whether it's worth doing them or not depends on whether you think it's a central causation factor that's going to make a difference on the results. And of course, you'd like to have some data about it so you know how big an effect it is. We could easily put fraud in and then play with it and see how big an effect it would have been at different levels.
0: The model seems to include a lot of micro and also macro factors like individual human preferences and macro things like interest rates. Does this mix of macro and micro factors have implications for the type of emergent behaviours you get from the model? Well, yeah, so this
1: model, um, prices and housing inventories are examples of emergent behaviour. Because in the model, we just have individuals, simulated individuals, making choices like, gee, I think I'm going to move and sell my house, and then going out in the market. So all the other properties in the model, like the prices that they sell their house at, whether how long their house spends on the market, whether they end up getting into trouble and having to default on their loan, all those things are emergent properties in, in the model.
0: All your results and work been received by the economics profession?
1: Well, so far I would say it's been very well received by central banks. Central banks have been frustrated in many cases by traditional economic advice and they're very open to other approaches. Work has in general not been as well received by the academic economics profession. They have a different notion about what they like and what they don't like. They don't like the fact that we typically don't worry about the equilibrium decision-making for the agents. We don't worry about that because we're dealing with complex network models where we can't compute it. And secondly, we're not convinced that people are uh, making their decisions based on rational expectations equilibrium anyway. But uh, that makes our models, let's say, suspect to economists.
0: So typically in your models, then agents in the model would have a simple heuristic or a rule of thumb that they would use and not this kind of semi-clairvoyant ability to perfectly act rationally in the future. Uh, that's right. You
1: stated it correctly. Now, of course, in fairness, the traditional economic agent is not clairvoyant and that there are fluctuations in the future they don't anticipate, but they are in a sense omniscient in that, They understand who else is in the market and they have correct models and they can infer what the consequences of those models are so that they everybody in the model has self-consistent expectations. In our models, people are typically using, in contrast, rules of thumb and may not result in self-consistent expectations. And we're comfortable doing that because we think that's how real people behave.
0: You hear sometimes non-economists say that economics is so bad is because economists have physics envy and try to make their fields as rigorous and analytically taught as their rocket science colleagues. I've heard you say that on the contrary, the problem is that economics is very far from physics. What do you mean by this? Well, yeah, to
1: a physicist, economics doesn't look much like physics. It's true that economists use a lot of math. In fact, they use math in a fancier way than we do. Economists, typically write papers in theorem proof format. It's very rare for physicists to write papers that way. We use a more informal kind of mathematics. But the big difference is in the the way the science is done. As I, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, physicists put data first. They're very pragmatic about what a theory should do. A theory to a physicist is something that can link diverse phenomena that are observed in the data To an economist, a theory is a model in which agents selfishly maximize their own preferences. And if you're not doing that in your theory, then to an economist, you don't have a theory. Physicist has a much more flexible and open-minded idea about what a theory is and what a theory should do. And is much more concerned about having the theory match up with data in a more comprehensive way. Say uh, the ambitions are to make more quantitative
0: predictions. In physics, theories are only as good as the amount of data that they explain. In, in economics, on the other hand, theories sometimes are as good as the amount of ideology they contain. Do you think the reason why work like yours doesn't get exposure in the major journals is because the theories point to the fact that capitalist economies are? highly cyclical and prone to depressions and and far from this kind of Panglossian neoclassical equilibrium state that we constantly hear of?
1: Well, in, in fairness, I think there are plenty of economists who are trying to understand bubbles and crashes and, let's say, misfunctioning states of the market. The difference is that to an economist, they want to see a paper that's written in a certain style, has some elegant mathematics in it, and it follows along in accepted lines of attack. Our papers tend to be coming out from a very different place, following a very different philosophy of how they do things. I agree with you that economic theory suffers from the fact that people are have ideological agendas that are oftentimes not even very well hidden with what they're doing. And I think the problem is that papers are accepted because... They make some conceptual point that, let's say, participates in this ideological debate in one direction or the other, and not because from some more open-minded point of view they just explained some facts or even noted that some regularities in facts exist in markets. It's a different kind of uh, scoring system about what's considered valuable and not valuable.
0: I've recently just watched a Noam Chomsky lecture on the philosophy of science. He talked about how when things get too tough for the physicist, they give it to the chemist. And when it gets too tough for the chemist, they give it to the biologist and so on until it ends up on the desk maybe of an economist or a psychologist or a poet. Do you envisage the economics profession divided strictly into macro, micro elements? Or do you think the complexity approach might lead way to a kind of a more unified approach? Well,
1: I think I think it could lead to a more unified approach.
0: I think that could could easily end up
1: happening and could be powerful. I think at this point, what economics badly needs, though, is a more diverse approach. Economists have settled on to one way of thinking about the world, and I think that method of thinking about the world has power in some circumstances, but it's limited. So I think the key thing that's needed is to expand what's in the toolkit by admitting other ways of thinking about the world into the tent and seeing what they can do. Through time, unification of knowledge into a single approach can be a very good thing, but it has to happen in a way that incorporates all of the elements, and that's, a, uh, in a sense, a more mature phase when um, you can have more unification because something works in, in a very broad way.
0: Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Farmer. Well, it's my
1: pleasure. I, I enjoyed talking to you.
0: Have to
1: come up soon for
0: on this episode... You heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures by Sunra and his orchestra and 21st Century Romance, again by the man Sun Ra. You also heard Beck telling us where it's at and you're now listening to The Grateful Dead with Sugar Magnolia. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.